If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 18. We'll begin reading at verse 22 through 33. The intercession for the two wicked cities began with a question, verse 23, that portrayed Abraham's acute awareness of God's mercy toward the righteous and the distinction he made between the good and the bad, verse 25. Abraham's clear understanding of God's character, verse 25, being able to only do what is good and totally above reproach, was affirmed with this rhetorical question, Shall not the judge of all the earth do just? Abraham's negotiation, far far from being grossly or selfishly manipulative, respectfully and compassionately expressed his concern for people, Genesis 13, 8 and 9, and particularly interceded for the place where his nephew Lot and his family lived. Neither did he intend to anger the Lord by his repeated request, verses 28, 30, and 32. That the number of righteous people necessary to forestall judgment had been reduced from 50 to 10, verse 32, may have reflected Abraham's awareness both of the intense wickedness of the cities as well as Lot's ineffective witness there. Abraham probably had the whole of Lot's family in mind. Nothing more could be done. Verse 33, the judgment was inevitable. We'll begin reading at Genesis chapter 18, beginning at verse 22. This is God's word. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in this city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. 
He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, O Lord, O let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Amen. Please turn with me to Revelation 19. We'll be reading verses 6 through 16. Revelation 19, 6 through 16. Heaven now begins to rejoice because Babylon the Great has fallen, and it is time for the appearing of the Lamb's Bride. The great marriage supper of salvation is ready to commence. Although he has withheld a description of the coming of the Lord on on at least three earlier occasions, the Apostle John is now prepared to describe the glories of the Lord's appearance. All All of heaven rejoices over the righteous judgment of God upon evil. We can see that in verses 1 through 6 of the same text. The Lamb's Bride, the people of God, has made herself ready for her faithfulness to her Lord through the hour of suffering. Therefore, it was given her, verse 8, always a gift, uh, therefore it was given her, verse 8, to clothe herself in fine linen for the wedding of the Lamb has come, verses uh, verses 7 through 8 of the text. Heaven is open, and the one whose coming has been faithfully petitioned from ages past. The word of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, appears to battle the enemies of God in the conflict whose overcome is not in doubt. Verses 11 through 16. We begin reading at chapter 19, beginning at verse 6. This is God's word. Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, 
and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen. I'd like to begin this morning by using an illustration from a movie. Uh, I, I somewhat hesitate to use the illustration because it's not necessarily a movie I would recommend. Um, not the most edifying movie. A number of you have probably seen the movie, and as soon as I, I give this illustration, you'll know the scene, you'll know the movie immediately. If you haven't seen the movie, it's okay. You'll get the illustration either way. That's probably better. But the, the scene gives one of the most accurate illustrations of the way in which many people approach God. The scene opens with a mother calling for the family to gather around the dinner table. And once all the family has gathered, the father begins to say grace. And he addresses his prayer to the sweet Lord baby Jesus. He then goes on for some length, and he lists out all the things he's thankful for, and he kind of goes on and on, things he's praying for. And throughout this prayer, he keeps saying, Lord, baby Jesus, Lord, baby Jesus. And at some point, his wife interrupts and says, no, you don't always have to pray to him as baby. He did grow up. And she's really just trying to kind of hurry things along at that point. But he responds to her and says, well, I like the Christmas Jesus best, and I'm the one praying. So when you pray, you can pray to whatever Jesus you want. You can pray to grown-up Jesus, teenage Jesus, or bearded Jesus, or whoever you want. And then the family kind of joins in. They all talk about how they like to think of Jesus. And of course, one of the kids likes to think of him as a ninja. right? And it, it just kind of devolves from there. It really is kind of a blasphemous scene. It's meant to be satirical, and as satire, it works. It works because it kind of reflects something true. I mean, there, there's a lot of us, even as professing Christians, that sometimes like to think of God in a particular way. And the way in which we think of God, the way in which we think of Jesus, isn't always necessarily the biblical Jesus. Now, I, I open with that illustration, not only because we just finished the second commandment in our discipleship hour, so it fits in well, but in Psalm 94, which will be our text this morning, the psalmist is going to look at a particular aspect of God, and it's one that's not very popular. When most people say, well, I like to think of God this way, it's not like Psalm 94. 
And we've all had friends or family members and, and maybe even ourselves at times who have said, well, I like to think of God as. But we're not free to think of God any way we want. This morning we're going to return briefly to our study of Psalms 92 through 100, which are, are known as the Yahweh Malach Psalms. And we looked at the first two of those psalms back in May. We took a, a brief detour um, and considered a three-part series on confessional Christianity. And part of the reason that I took that break was, uh, and particularly in that last message of that series, we focused on the most basic Christian confession that Jesus is Lord. And the confession that Jesus is Lord is essentially the same confession as Yahweh Malach. Yahweh Malach is the, the Hebrew phrase that simply means Yahweh reigns, the Lord reigns. And the confession that Jesus is Lord isn't contradictory to that because Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God, and Jesus reigns. That's what it means to say that Jesus is Lord, is that he reigns as king. Yahweh Malach and Jesus is Lord are largely the same confession. And Psalm 94 doesn't contain that particular phrase, Yahweh Malach. Not every psalm in this section does. But all of them are united with that same theme of God being a king who rules. And in Psalm 94, the psalmist particularly looks at one aspect of kingly rule, and that is that Yahweh reigns as judge of all the earth. Now Psalm 94 can be outlined in six stanzas, not Quite the same as our Psalter, though the same number, just slightly different. Um, each of these has four verses except for the first, which has three. And so uh, to give you an outline of Psalm 94, in the first three verses you have a cry for vengeance. In verses 4 through 7, a description of the wicked. A call for understanding in verses 8 through 11. A mature hope in verses 12 through 15. Remembrance of past help, verses 16 through 19. And then a judgment to come, verses 20 through 23. Please follow along with me as I read from God's holy word, beginning in verse 1 of Psalm 94. O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say the Lord does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord, knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who rises up for me against the wicked? 
Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who bring injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. Let us pray. Our Father, you are the King eternal. You rule heaven and earth according to your will. And one day you will judge the living and the dead. We thank you for this text this morning. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. That we are not left to our own imaginations of who you are and what you are like. But you have you've communicated yourself to, to us in your word. And so help us this morning as we work through this psalm. As we seek to understand your word and seek to apply it in our lives. Help us to do so aright. Prevent us from distractions and and wandering thoughts and help us to focus on the only thing worth focusing on. For you alone are worthy of all glory and praise and honor. And we ask all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Psalm 94 has no superscript. We don't know who the author of Psalm 94 is. We don't know the situation that caused him to pen Uh, this song, but there must have been some great wickedness that spurred him to take up his pen. And we see that in the opening line of the cry for vengeance in stanza one. He says, O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. He begins by addressing God by his covenant name, Yahweh, O Lord. And then immediately he says, God of vengeance. He actually repeats it, God of vengeance, twice. And right there, that's the character attribute that many do not associate with God and don't like about God. If we say that God is love, that is a true biblical description of God. It is an accurate description of God. It's also a description of God that almost nobody would argue with. If you say that God is judge of all the earth, if you say that God is a jealous God, if you say that our God is a consuming fire, Well, a lot of people don't like to think of God that way. But the psalmist does. And he finds comfort in the fact that God is a God of vengeance. But for some, vengeance seems harsh and inappropriate for God. And and part of the reason for that is that we think of of vengeance in the term of revenge. Uh, And we think of it in personal terms. We think of it in terms of someone cut me off on the road, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run them off the road. Right? That's revenge. That's not vengeance. James Boyce has some helpful comments uh, on this distinction between revenge and vengeance. He says, The reason such people have this problem is that they do not distinguish between vengeance and revenge. And then he quotes Dr. Samuel Johnson, who made the first great English dictionary. And Johnson made this distinction. He says, Revenge is an act of passion. Vengeance of justice. 
Injuries are revenged. Crimes are avenged. In other words, Boyce says, revenge is a response to personal injury, while vengeance is a function of legitimate judicial authority. And this is why Paul writes about both as he does in Romans 12. Paul says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Romans 12, 18 through 19, quoting Deuteronomy 32, 35. Boyce goes on, the reason why vengeance belongs to God and not to man is that man and our emotions usually cause it to degenerate into mere revenge. Vengeance is proper to God. It is a function of his perfect justice. And one of the roles of ancient kings was to function as a judge. Particularly in smaller kingdoms, the the king would be the judge. If you had to dispute, you would go to the king. We we see this played out uh, in David's life. You have a dispute, you bring it to the king, the king judges. The king is the one who administers justice. And a king who does not suppress evil is an unjust king. And so the psalmist cries out to the God of vengeance to shine forth, to make his vengeance known, to act and display his justice. And that cry continues in verse 2. He says in verse 2, Rise up, O judge of the earth, repay to the proud what they deserve. And here we see this connection between vengeance and justice. The Lord is the judge of all the earth. And that's the same title that Abraham used in the, the passage that Brother Walt read from Genesis uh, Genesis 18, where Abraham is, is interceding for Sodom, and he appeals to God as the judge of all the earth because he knows the judge of all the earth will do right. And so Yahweh reigns as king, which means he also reigns as judge. And we, we shouldn't be surprised to find out that this title judge is also given to Jesus. In 2 Timothy 4.1, Paul grounds his charge to Timothy to preach the word and the fact that Jesus is the judge. Paul tells Paul tells Timothy, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. And then he goes on to say, preach the word in season and out of season. But he's to do that because Jesus Christ is the judge of the living and the dead because he is Yahweh and he's always been judge. And then the book of Revelation describes Jesus' coming. We have this beautiful picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb And then immediately after, we're told he's coming on a white horse, and he's coming to judge and to make war. We like that part about the marriage supper. (laughs) The making war, not so much. The psalmist calls upon the judge to rise up, not just against anyone, but specifically against those who deserve such vengeance. And there seems to be no doubt of whether or not God is judge, Or that he has the power to judge. The the question is, when will this justice be executed? And so in verse 3 he says, O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? And here we see a glimpse of what's driving the psalmist to be so urgent in his prayer. There's wicked individuals who are acting wickedly and nothing's happening. I mean, they're just doing horrible things 
and instead of suffering, they're flourishing. Um, earlier this week, I had an opportunity. I, I met a guy at the gym who's a missionary to Micronesia, and um, I took him out to lunch. We've been kind of corresponding back and forth, and he's from an island called Chuk. This is the middle of nowhere. Um, never heard of it. But I asked him, what, what's the government like? And he starts describing it. Well, it's pretty corrupt. Um, you know, the person with the most money tends to win, and then they spend their whole time in office just uh, managing things so they get back in office. And I thought, oh, so kind of like here. <laughs> right? All around us, there are wicked people doing wicked things, and oftentimes it looks like there are no consequences. Right? That, that's the situation that the psalmist finds himself in. And so he goes on in the second stanza to give us a description of these wicked individuals. He says in verse 4, they pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. So it's not merely that they're doing a lot of evil things, they're really proud about it. Right? I mean, they, they have a publicist that's marketing this, that's touting and boasting about all these wicked things that they're doing. And what sins is it that they have committed, we see in verse 5, they crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They're, they're persecuting God's flock. And they're making sport of the saints, particularly the weakest among them, in verse 6. He says, they kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. You know, these are truly wicked people. I mean, most people don't take pleasure in beating up somebody smaller than them. I mean, they shouldn't. I mean, that, that seems really wrong. If, you, if someone goes to prison for harming a child, it's not uncommon for really bad people who are in prison for other really bad things to hate them because you don't do that. But that's what these people are doing. They're, they're attacking the widows, you know, people who had, women who had no husbands to provide for them, no husbands to protect them, Sojourners who were non-Israelites, these are foreigners, who don't have all the social safety net of Israel. They're separated from that. And the fatherless, orphans, who lack not only parents to look after them, but if they died early enough, they also don't get an inheritance. And so we're talking about the weakest people of society, and this is who these wicked people, the weakest people of society, and these wicked people are preying upon them. And the psalmist says that they're really proud about that. They're they're exploiting it, and they're destroying these helpless people. And part of the reason for their arrogance is seen in verse 7. And they say, the Lord does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive. Now, it's interesting, they don't deny God's presence. They just think he's ignorant. They deny his omniscience. Perhaps they like to think of God as an aloof old grandfather who would give them nice things no matter how rotten they are. Not unlike some people today. And why do they think that God doesn't see what they're doing? Because God's not doing anything about it. I mean, they've been doing this for years, and they've got plenty of money and good health. Derek Kidner notes that the taunt of verse 7 has always been plausible in the short run. The, the, the taunt that God doesn't see what I'm doing is always plausible for the short term. Their words here are probably the content of their arrogant boasting that was found in verse 3. 
right? They're, they're proud, they're arrogant. God doesn't see this. And so the psalmist responds to such arrogance in the next stanza with a call for understanding. Beginning in verse 8, he says, Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? And we should note here that the psalmist does open up by asking God to do something, right? And to repay to these people what they deserve. But that is not contradictory or inconsistent with trying to reason with them and trying to get them to turn from their wicked ways. In the four verses of the stanza, the psalmist is trying to, to rationalize with these wicked people. But he doesn't sugarcoat his approach. He calls them the dullest of the people and fools. Other translations use words such as brutes, in the sense of brute beasts, senseless and stupid ones. He is essentially turning the taunt of verse 7 back upon them. They thought God was senseless and ignorant, but it is they who are acting like stupid beasts. And that that reversal is even clearer in the Hebrew. The last word of verse 7 is the same word of verse 8. They don't think God perceives, and so the psalmist is calling them to perceive. They don't think God understands. The psalmist is saying, no, you need to understand. He asked them when they will be wise. Now, ironically, they probably thought they already were because they were getting away with everything. But to be wise in the biblical sense is to know and fear the Lord. And the psalmist points out how illogical the wicked are in the next three verses. He says in verse 9, Who planted the ear? Does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? And when you ask the question like that, the boast of the wicked really seems ludicrous. I mean, the God who spoke everything into existence, don't you think he sees what's going on? Don't you think he hears? I mean, he designed the ear. He designed the eye. Obviously, he can hear and see. He goes on in verse 10. He says, he who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? And the psalmist likely has in mind here that The Lord has disciplined other nations that these wicked people know about, like Egypt in the Exodus. And earlier in verse 8, he called them the dullest of the people. It's likely that the wicked individuals that the psalmist is dealing with are Israelites, that are wicked rulers in Israel, who know that the Lord has disciplined other nations, but arrogantly think he won't discipline them. So verse 10 continues, He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man that they are but a breath. The true source of all knowledge and wisdom is the Lord. And if that is the case, would he not also know the thoughts of mere mortal men? And there's a word play here. God knows the thoughts of man. The word man is Adam. And he knows that they are but a breath, which is the word Abel, as in Cain and Abel. The Lord knows the thoughts of of mankind that they're as fleeting and short-lived as Abel. The Apostle Paul quotes this verse in 1 Corinthians 3.20. He changes it slightly. He says, The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. See, even the best of human wisdom is really nothing against the wisdom of God. And great... Great wisdom comes from recognizing who God is. Spurgeon includes an excerpt from J.M. Neal concerning this stanza that I think is helpful. He says, uh, and he's quoting the rabbis, which, which understood this 
this point very well. He says, the, the wise counsel of the rabbis that the three best safeguards against falling into sin are to remember first that there is an ear which hears everything. Secondly, that there is an eye which sees everything. And thirdly, that there is a hand which writes everything in the book of knowledge which shall be opened at the judgment. And so this is the psalmist rational argument that he's trying to make with these wicked individuals. But regardless of their response, he moves on to express a mature hope in the fourth stanza. Beginning of verse 12, he says, Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. Now, discipline is another term that often conjures up negative connotations. Uh, when we think of a parent disciplining their child, we, we generally think of the rod. Uh, when we think of church discipline, we generally think of excommunication, putting somebody out of the church. But the word discipline is much broader than that. Right? It, it really means instruction and training. Uh, we should really think in terms of the spiritual disciplines that we've, we've worked through in our discipleship class or the means of grace. That is discipline. Sitting under the preaching and teaching of God's word is discipline. We typically don't think of it that, that way, but what we are doing this morning is church discipline. It's kind of prescriptive and a preventative discipline in a sense. Uh, we are being trained and instructed, disciplined by God's word. And so the psalmist says that the man who is disciplined or instructed by God is blessed. And then he gives four specific ways that the person who is disciplined by God's word is blessed. Beginning at verse 13. He says, to give him rest from days of trouble. So those who are disciplined by the word of God are assured rest. Now that doesn't mean they won't ever have a problem, but it does mean that they will have a certain rest and comfort in those problems. Second, those who are disciplined by God's word are promised judgment, the latter half of verse 13, until a pit is dug for the wicked. There's often a delay between the actions of the wicked and the judgment of the wicked. But God assures the righteous that he will execute judgment. A pit is being dug for the wicked. And the rest promised in the first half of verse 13 is a patient waiting for God to finish digging that pit. Now often this pit is prepared not so much by the Lord directly, but by allowing wicked people to dig their own pit. Psalm 9.15 says, The nations have sunk in the pit that they made, in the net that they hid. Their own foot has been caught. You see that echoed throughout the Psalms. Uh, We see this really illustrated well in the book of Esther with Haman, who literally builds the gallows that he hangs from. Uh, that's, That's the way God generally works. He allows the wicked to build up their pit, and he allows them time to do it. And we think, why does he hurry up? He's allowing them to build a bigger pit. The third blessing for those who are disciplined by God's word is that the Lord will continue to be faithful to them. Verse 14, for the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. The Lord will never abandon his people. And Old Testament saints could look to the the great promises and the covenants of Abraham and and Moses and David and say, I know from those promises that God will be faithful. And they could look at the great redemptive acts like the Exodus and say, I know that God did that and he will get me through this. Today, we can look not only to those promises and those acts, but the fact that God has given his greatest gift for us. 
If God gave the greatest thing he could possibly give, how would he ever leave us? Uh, It doesn't make any sense. The Lord will continue always to be faithful. The fourth blessing for those who are disciplined by God's word is a guarantee of justice in verse 15. For justice will return. That's a promise. It will return to the righteous and all the upright in heart will follow it. Justice is rarely meted out in our desired time frame. But God assures us that it will be meted out. The righteous will enjoy justice. And to bolster this argument, the psalmist offers some personal reflection on a remembrance of past help in the fifth stanza. He begins by asking what assistance he had against the wicked in verse 16. He says, who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? And these are rhetorical questions. The the implied answer is no one. That's pretty hard when you're going through a trial, you're being oppressed, you're looking around for somebody to stand up and help you or at least stand with you, and there's no one there. Trials are always difficult, but doubly so when faced alone. But the psalmist wasn't completely alone. He says in verse 17, If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. If it hadn't been for the Lord, the psalmist would have simply gone to the grave in despair. But the Lord was his help. And the Apostle Paul experienced this as well. He's writing of his last imprisonment in 2 Timothy 1. He says that all of those in Asia had turned away from him. And then later in that letter, he mentions that he was deserted by Demas. And then a few verses later, he says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me but all deserted me. He's in a very similar situation to the psalmist, but just like the psalmist, he says, 2 Timothy 4.17, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it, so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Paul, Paul understands what the psalmist is going through. He's been there. He's been deserted, but not by the Lord. There were times, however, that the psalmist felt he was close to being overwhelmed by his tragic circumstances. He says in verses 18 and 19, When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Now it's tempting to gloss over the struggles of other saints. We read about David or Paul, we see them going through these trials. We see Paul alone at his trial. And we see him confidently say, but the Lord was with me. And we think, oh, that must have been easy. After all, it's Paul. I mean, he's just got this perfect relationship with God. Or, well, that was David, right? He's he's a man after God's own heart. Yeah, I'm sure he had trials, but, you know, he got through them pretty easy. Now me, I've got... I've got trials that nobody else knows. And they don't understand the struggles. I'm, and, and I'm struggling with this, but I'm the only one. Right? It's easy for us to come to church and see everyone else at their best and think we're the only ones going through stuff. That we're the only one who got in an argument with their spouse on the way to church this morning. Right? Or we're the only ones who got impatient with their kids. Or we're the only ones dealing with X, Y, or Z. I mean, all of us do this. 
We look at other people. I was thinking about Pastor Ben on this point this week. I've known Pastor Ben for over 20 years now. I don't recall him ever getting angry in those 20 years. Like, I cannot think of a time he's ever snapped at somebody. If I asked him, he would probably say, I could tell you stories. Right? But I don't, I don't see that. And, and I don't see the struggles that some of you go through. You don't see the, some of the struggles I go through. And that's why I think it's really helpful that the psalmist takes a minute to say, look, I thought I was going to slip. Right? There were many problems in my soul. Right? It, it wasn't like a care arose and then he trusted the Lord and was gone. Right? No, he said there are many, many struggles. And so I think it's really helpful for us to share our struggles with one another. I can remember as a young believer, I had a, a minor crisis in my life, which I thought was the end of the world. And I went to the pastor of my church in Jacksonville, and I, I knew a little bit about his background. He, he had been really wronged by some fellow believers, and he had gone through some trials in his life. And we talked for probably a couple hours, and I don't remember 99% of what he said. What I do remember is that he said, the Lord has always been faithful. Despite everything I've ever gone through, the Lord has been faithful. And that was a real comfort to me because I knew he had actually gone through some stuff and the Lord had been faithful to him. That was an encouragement to me. And that's what the psalmist is doing here. So I, I, would, I would exhort you to emulate the psalmist in that. We should share our struggles with one another and share how we, we're working through those. Ask others to pray for us. And then when we have victories, we should share that too. But we shouldn't hide our struggles from one another. Well, finally, we come to the sixth and final stanza where we are further reassured that there is a judgment to come. In verse 20, he says, Can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statute? And here again, we have a rhetorical question that expects a negative answer. The, the wicked not only do wicked deeds, they're making wicked laws. Again, there's plenty of modern-day application to that. Well, obviously, those types of people can't be allied to God. And so they ally with themselves, verse 21. They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. Literally, that's they condemn innocent blood to death. We see echoes there of the description of the wicked in the second stanza. It's these who are preying on the innocent the weakest of society. But the psalmist has a fortress of refuge in verse 22. He says, But the Lord has become my stronghold, and my, my God, the rock of my refuge. And with that refuge, he has a sure hope that everything will be set right. In verse 23, he says, He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. And again, we see that the punishment that the Lord meets out is, is often prepared by those who are to be punished. And then a final assessment, all accounts will be settled. The Lord will cast out all evildoers. And that's, that's a very sober conclusion to a pretty sober psalm. Now, is it appropriate for us as Christians today to pray the way the psalmist does in Psalm 94? Can we sing as Christians Psalm 94. I mean, I hope so, because we already did. And it was a pretty 
That's a pretty good rendering of Psalm 94. They, they didn't sugarcoat Psalm 94. Well, the Puritan poet uh, John Milton definitely believed it's appropriate to use such language even as a Christian. In the mid-16th century, the Reformation was spreading all through Europe. And it's really probably more accurate to talk about reformations because they're going on differently everywhere. And in some countries, the government supported the reforms. The the believers there had the patronage of the government and uh, they weren't being persecuted. But in many places, the government was not too fond of the Reformation. A group of Reformed believers in the Piedmont region of Italy saw the Lord do really amazing things. They're they're openly debating with the Catholic priests, and the Lord is, is delivering people. He's bringing them to faith in Jesus. But soon the government intervened to stamp out these Protestant reformers. They're known as the Waldensians. And the government wanted to impose Roman Catholicism. And so on the 25th of January, 1655, an edict was issued. This is part of that edict. It says the Waldensians have to immediately stop and forever cease the exercise of their religion. All their ancient privileges are abolished. They used to have certain legal rights done. All their temples, their prayer books, and consecrated buildings must be destroyed. All the pastors and school teachers of the valleys must embrace Catholicism or leave the country within 15 days under penalty of death and confiscation of all goods. All children born of Protestant parents will be forcibly raised as Catholic. Therefore, the parents with a child must, the day after his birth, present it to the priest of the parish. The penalty for not doing so will result in the mother being publicly beaten and the father spending five years in the galleys. That was the edict that was published to force these reformed believers to go back to Rome. Well, the Waldensian believers refused. And three months later, during the week of Easter, somewhere between 1,700 and 6,000 Waldensian men, women, and children were slaughtered. And that Easter came to be known as the Piedmontese Easter or Bloody Easter. There's an article in the Puritan Reformed Journal that describes it this way. It says, some men were burnt alive, others flayed, others thrown from the ravines, Still more were used as targets. In a letter to their brothers, the Waldensians of the Lucerna Valley wrote that their eyes do not shed tears of water anymore, but of blood. In one place, 150 women and children were massacred. Their mothers were violated, their heads were cut, and their children thrown upon the rocks. Others that refused to go to the mass were hanged upside down from the trees. Some villages were falsely promised safety, only to be put under arrest. All the valleys were exterminated. Now, moved by that tragedy, a number of European countries registered complaints. Said, hey, that don't do that. That's wrong. But the poet John Milton took up his pen and offered a prayer in the form of a sonnet. Milton said, avenge, O Lord, Thy slaughtered saints, whose bones lie scattered on the alpine mountains cold, even them who kept thy truth so pure of old, when all our fathers worshipped stocks and stones. Forget not 
In thy book record their groans, who were thy sheep, and in their ancient fold slain by the bloody Piedmontese that rolled mother with infant down the rocks. Their moans the valleys redoubled to the hills, and they to heaven. Their martyred blood and ashes so were all the Italian fields, where still doth sway the triple tyrant, that from these may grow a hundredfold, who having learnt thy way early, may fly the Babylonian woe. Now, thankfully, we don't live in a country where this is likely to happen soon, maybe one day. But our country is guilty of the deaths of far more than died in the Piedmontese Easter. And last Lord's Day, Pastor Ben preached on the sanctity of human life. And in God's providence, I happened to see a YouTube clip of an interview this past week. The interview was of a a young medical student in Wisconsin who was testifying before the state legislature because there's a proposed ban against abortions after, I think, the 14th week. And this young medical student was testifying, and she was saying that her and many others would flee the state of Wisconsin if Wisconsin refused to teach them how to do abortions and allow them to do so in their practice. Essentially, she was saying that if the state will not allow her to learn how to commit mass murder and then go perpetuate mass murder, she'll go find a state that will. Brethren, that's evil. Um, Those are the most helpless people of our society. And so how should we respond in light of such evils? Well, I think Psalm 94 gives us three ways. First, it is fully appropriate as Christians that we pray for our Lord Jesus Christ to intervene and execute vengeance. We don't pray such prayers lightly, and we should not pray them over personal grievances. Not going down the road, right? Uh, But there is real evil in our day, and we should pray that the Lord intervene. When a war is being waged against the most helpless class of God's image bearers, such prayers are warranted. Second, while we wait for Jesus to set all things right, we should speak out. We should confront the wicked and plead with them to consider their ways. Calling for God to execute vengeance is not inconsistent with us seeking their salvation and calling them to repentance, but we have to speak out and oppose it. And I sincerely hope that this young woman comes to Christ. But if she doesn't, I hope God stops her before she can kill a single human being. The third and final way that Psalm 94 teaches us how to respond to such evil and the seeming delay in God's judgment is to live by faith. Suppose I were to tell you to to wake up early tomorrow morning, say around 5 a.m., and go outside And I looked at the weather. It's supposed to be pretty cloudy. So let's say you can't see the stars or the moon. And you're standing out there in the dark, and someone asks, is the sun shining? And by that, they don't mean can you see it, but is it actually shining wherever it is? Now, you probably think that person's just being silly or trying to be annoying. Uh, And you say, yeah, of course it's shining. The sun's always shining. But what if they press and said, well, how do you know it's shining? can't see it. You know, it's dark. How do you know it didn't disappear overnight? 
Well, you would probably appeal to intellectual and experiential knowledge. You would say, intellectually, I kind of know how the solar system works. The, the Earth is rotating or spinning. It's rotating around the sun, and you know, we're just faced away from it right now. Uh, in, in time, probably about six-something, you know, we'll face it, and I'll see the sun. Right? So you have some intellectual knowledge there. But you also have experiential knowledge. The sun came up this morning and yesterday morning and every morning since you've been alive, right? Uh, so you have this intellectual knowledge and you have this experiential knowledge. And so you would have absolutely no doubt that you'll see the sun tomorrow. Right? You have absolute assurance of that. There's a sense that we're called to have that same type of assurance that God reigns. That our Lord Jesus Christ is now seated at the right hand of God, that all power in heaven and on earth has been given to him. It shouldn't matter if things look like it's a mess. It shouldn't matter if wicked men are enjoying their wickedness for a season. The lack of present evidence should not cause us to doubt what we know to be true from scripture and experience. The Lord is always who he is. The Lord reigns always. He always reigns as judge. That's the assurance from from which the psalmist penned Psalm 94. It's the same assurance that Habakkuk expressed in Habakkuk 3. Habakkuk, the prophet, says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Right, so from all outward signs, things are bad. But Habakkuk says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. And so may we each live by faith as we await the return of King Jesus, who is the judge of all the earth, the judge of the living and the dead. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this text this morning. We thank you for revealing yourself to us. Father, we do confess that we live in a wicked age. There are wicked men and women who who enshrine wickedness in laws, who are proud and arrogant and boast of their wickedness. And there are those who prey upon the most helpless of your creatures. And so, Father, we do pray that you would rise up, that you would execute vengeance, that you would set things right. And while we await that vengeance, Father, enable us to to speak out, to confront evil, and help us to live by faith that despite, despite what the world looks like, you are in control. You are allowing the wicked to dig their own pits, and you are conforming your people into the image of your Son. And so no matter what the world looks like, may we give you all praise and all glory and all honor. For to you alone it is due. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.